Welcome, everyone. Can you hear me? I mean, the room is pretty small. I don't even know if I need the mic. You can hear me? Okay. Uh, so we're really excited to have such a lively and engaged audience tonight. I can tell, and half of you I know, so I can say <laughs> that with confidence. Um, you know, there's an expression that came to mind as I was putting together an introduction for this panel, and it is, everything old is new again. And I was like, where is that from? And it's actually a Peter Allen song, and it has nothing to do with social welfare policy. <laughs> and if anything, it's like rather an optimistic uh, song. Um, but it definitely takes on a darker meaning in the context of our discussion tonight on the state of social welfare policy under the Trump administration. Just by way of introduction, um, I want to point to two sort of old new things that are um, looming very large on the landscape right now. The first is pretty obvious, which is the welfare reform law that was signed by Bill Clinton in 1996, the Personal Responsibility Work Opportunity and Reconciliation Act, um, more commonly called uh, welfare reform or the Personal Responsibility Act. And uh, that law is being cited by um, Congress, by folks in the executive, in the administration of the president as a great example of welfare reform and how to reform a public benefits um, program. And we're going to hear from experts on this tonight, so I'm going to limit my remarks. But what I'll just say, um, and the experts will talk about in a little more detail, is that it's the only uh, way you could call welfare reform as a success is if you measure it by uh, the number of people who had their cases closed. Um, it has had no correspondence to any decrease in poverty, which we at least would like to think is the purpose of our social safety net. Um, the other sort of old new thing that's around uh, is the face of Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> and um, <laughs> for, for many of us who've worked in legal services longer even than me, uh, we think of Giuliani not only as of the mayor of New York City from 1994 to, but to 2001, but as having presided over the implementation of welfare reform here in New York City, and which had a big influence in New York State. And, um, you know, I found the bar report that our Social Welfare Law Committee wrote in 2001 on the state of welfare reform back then. And I pulled a quote from it. What, what the, our colleagues said back then was, the basis for the diversion policy and for many other features of the Giuliani-Turner governance of the Human Resources Administration, which is the social services district here in New York City, is an attempt to create a crisis in welfare recipients' lives, precipitating such dire prospects as hunger and homelessness so that they can be forced to seek some alternative to public assistance. Mm -hmm. So the whole upshot of what um, was happening in New York, at least in the beginning, was something we often refer to as diversion of like preventing people from even uh, making their benefits application. And um, you know, this is nothing new in the social welfare area, but the, the way the welfare reform law was structured 
is such that it really gave um, the bureaucrats a lot of, uh, of ways to divert people, a lot of fear-based tools, uh, work rules that may be imposed on people with disabilities, the exclusion of immigrants, and of course these are exactly the things that are now on the table today and that we're going to discuss today. I will also say by way of introduction that things got better in New York City um, thanks to a very unique provision of our state constitution, Article 17, Section 1, that was forged during the Great Depression and provides that any New York resident has a substantive right to aid. I mean, there's some limitations on it, but it's essentially a substantive right. Using that state constitutional provision, lawyers in New York have been able to uh, really stem the worst of welfare reform that impacted, has impacted so many other states around the country. And this issue of how uh, the law could manifest itself in one way here in New York and it be so different um, everywhere else is something that Professor Mishner is going to speak to a little bit too. Um, okay, so that's, that's sort of some background for you. Um, I'm going to introduce each of the panelists as they speak, um, but I just want to thank you all um, for coming in many instances quite a long way to be here. And um, we're very honored to have you here. And we really all are just sort of pinching ourselves that we have such an amazing panel of scholars and lawyers and activists here to speak to the City Bar. Um, we are recording this event by audio tape. And we hope to make a report out of it as well. So I think that it, your words and what you're bringing tonight are, is going to go beyond um, even the the packed room that we have here. Um, first, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to discuss uh, the historical context for federal policy issues um, in the social welfare realm and hear more about the current policy issues themselves. Um, second, we're going to discuss strategies for combating these policies and step back and consider the question of what, if anything, we can do to maybe stop the cycle of the repetition of these bad policies um, rearing their heads every, you know, every 20 years. Um, before we get to the panelists, I also just want to thank uh, the City Bar Association for giving us this forum in which to explore current issues and also uh, to thank the co-sponsors of this event, the many co-sponsors of the event who are listed on the program, um, which include the City Bar Justice Center, uh, the Legal Aid Society, Make the Road New York, um, the New York Immigration Coalition, and several committees of the City Bar. There's our committee, the Social Welfare Law Committee, and I want to thank in particular the members of our committee who are here tonight who've done so much work to make this happen. Um, and also the Immigration and Nationality Law Committee, the International Human Rights Committee, the Civil Rights Committee, and the Pro Bono Legal Services Committee, all the committees with really long names. Um, so without any more intro, oh, one other thing. So questions. If, if you all have questions, we think that the sort of the easiest way to go about this and to give everyone a chance to present their questions to the panelists based on prior experience is to have you write your question 
and then a runner um, slash committee member will pass it to me and then at the right time I will try to ask all the questions. So can the runners stand up? There's our amazing runners. So they have uh, stickies and hopefully you all have your own pens and if and when you have a question you can either bring it right up to me that's fine or you could give it to one of the runners and um, I will endeavor to make sure your question gets presented. And if it doesn't work, we'll just start taking questions because it's not that big a it's not that big a room. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce Professor Jamila Mishner. She is a professor of government from Cornell University, whose scholarship focuses on poverty and racial inequality in American politics, and who has a new book which I've brought. Um, and I've read Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics, and it's really amazing, and people have asked me if they could borrow it, and I'm gonna tell you no, you should go out and buy it. <laughs> Plus, I've marked it all up with my crazy notes. So, uh, Professor Mishner, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, I'm gonna try to, I, I'm pretty loud, I don't have a problem projecting, but I still try to speak into the mic. Uh, so thank you for having me. I feel like I'm the non-lawyer crashing the panel. Um, but I also feel like in, in many ways I feel uh, pretty at home with this crowd. I'm working on a project right now that is my sort of next big project that's focused on civil legal representation and democratic citizenship. And so I'm just starting to really um, get a sense of all of the amazing work that you all do and what it means for our democracy and I'm gonna be spending a, probably at least the next two years thinking about that, so it's nice to begin to ingratiate myself with this crowd. Um, so I am actually going to start with some historical backdrop, and it, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna to try to keep my, my commentary relatively short, and I have some PowerPoint slides, but I'll, I'll weave in and out of the historical part, in, in part the, the goal for me, um, and I think for the, for, to help facilitate the panel more broadly is to set a background, right? There's no way that the background is gonna be comprehensive or exhaustive, right? It, every fall at Cornell, I teach a class called The Politics of Poverty in the US. And we spend 15 weeks just talking about poverty in the US. And at the end of the 15 weeks, we, we're not near the bottom of the number of things that we can talk about and study, right? And I teach a sort of part two version of that class called Poverty and Social Policy that's a graduate level course. And a lot of times, my undergraduates that have taken my poverty class will wanna take the grad course because they're like, there's still so much more to learn. So if I can't do it in 15 weeks, I certainly <laughs> can't do it in uh, nine more minutes. Uh, so that is just expectation management, right? Expectation management is key to any presentation. Set the bar low. Um, so we're just, I'm just gonna try to cover enough that we have a good sort of footing, a good foundation for some of the things that I anticipate may come up in the conversation. I'm really honored to be sitting here with this, this panel. There are so many people here um, whose work I admire. So hopefully I can make it easier for them to be the ones with the brilliant insights by saying some of the kind of basic background information. So here's a quote. Poverty is a grinding experience. Although relief is available to some on a limited basis, most have to work or starve. They work the most tedious and grueling tasks, the jobs that no one wants. 
Their labor often results in injury or illness, but they have no emergency funds to tide them over. This is a quote I got from a book, a kind of encyclopedic, encyclopedic um, book on poverty by Gwendolyn Mink and Alice O'Connor. But interestingly, Mink and O'Connor in this description are talking about their evaluation of what poverty was like in early America. So this is them describing poverty during the colonial era. But I was really struck the first time I read this because it's not far off the mark in depending on, on you know, for whom, which subsets of people living in poverty and where you look, this could be a description of poverty in places in modern day America, right? And so part of what I wanna emphasize for the next few minutes is just the kind of continuity, uh, both continuity and change that really are characteristic of the landscape of social policy with respect to poverty in the US, right? And whenever I teach my, my intro course on the, po the politics of poverty, I mean, I'm always astonished at the, the low level of knowledge that the undergraduates come into the course with, right? The smartest kids in the world, they know really almost nothing about poverty. Um, but then they're always surprised at the continuity that they see. So we approach the, the course historically, and I start with poverty in the colonial era, and we move, we move accordingly. And they're just like, wait, but we, we saw this before. But wait, we saw this, and there are key themes that emerge, and I wanna focus on some of these key themes. So if we think about poverty in early America, this is like, oh, the 13 colonies. What were the 13? Do you remember? No, I never remember. <laughs> There's always like one colony that I'm like, but which one? I can't remember. Um, but my, you know, I have, I have school-age children, so pretty soon they'll learn, and then they can teach me. Uh, but there are some things, some aspects of poverty in early America that I see as sort of having a certain continuity with the, with the sort of demographics and the contours of poverty now. So there was an economic structure, a very different economic structure then, but nonetheless an economic structure that produced, consistently produced substantial poverty, right? Um, that was an agrarian economy that looked different from ours, but it did consistently produce substantial poverty. Society was built on class hierarchy, right? So there were social classes and they, there was a hierarchy among those classes, even though there was actually much less economic inequality then than there is now. There's actually much more economic inequality now, as far as any measurements that we can get our hands on, than there was in colonial America. That hierarchy was racialized, right? Mm -hmm. Though certainly poor whites suffered, right? They were indentured servants, et cetera. Um, but the hierarchy was tremendously racialized. There were people who were on the outside of all and any possibility for benefiting from what was a version of social policy during that time. States and loca localities were most responsible for the poor during this time. Again, there's a continuity here, right? Uh, there, this was more so the case during the sort of colonial era and for a long time essentially until the Great Depression because the federal government played almost no role for a very long time. There, there, was, there were some, there's some things that they did. Um, but so this was more so the case then, but it still remains now. And a lot of groups were uh, excluded from what was considered aid at that time, right? Uh, immigrants, indigenous populations, often unmarried women or other people who were considered to not adhere to social norms, right? So unmarried women who had children, et cetera. And of course, people who were enslaved. 
And so these are just some of the basic ways my students are like, oh wait, we're seeing these things a long, long time ago and we see remnants of them now. And I think these basic uh, continuities are important to keep in mind. Of course there's change, right? This is a picture of a, um, what folks called a poorhouse uh, in the 1830s <coughs> in this state, in New York State. And we don't have those anymore, but the, some of the logic that underlied building these structures still exists. They vary tremendously across states. There was very little fe federal regulation of these poor houses. They had contradictory goals. We wanna help, we wanna fix, we wanna control, um, we wanna limit costs, right? Um, and so there are key social policy issues like the kind of continuities that we see with, even with an institution like a poorhouse that no longer exists. It's familiar in terms of the policy challenges there. There are key social policy issues and challenges that will be familiar to us, right? Things that always pop up. This unending desire to differentiate the deserving from the undeserving. If academic research, and here's a sampling of that research, is any indication, this is the thing. It's if arguably the main feature of, um, of the kind of policy landscape in the US, and, and not just in the US, it actually started um, well before this country was even an idea in anyone's mind, but we've sort of perfected the art of obsessing over deservingness. And it, there's, it, there's some consequence to that, right? Because there's a stigmatization of the undeserving that comes with that, right? So this quote is interesting. Those who are paupers, this is in a time when there's a difference between the poor and the pauper, <laughs> and the pauper was the undeserving, are so far, are, are so far more character, um, than from, are so far more from character than from condition. They have the pauper trait, they bear the pauper brand. This seems so dated in a way, but familiar in another way, right? This is Francis Walker, who was the head of the US Census in the 1890s. But a lot of these ideas are reflected in modern day American public opinion. If you ask the public, as this poll did, uh, circa 2013, I believe, who's deserving and not deserving of help. It essentially maps onto what we'd expect, the elderly. So the, the proportion of people who say that these different groups are deserving is the gray part of the bar, right? And so the elderly, children, folks who are disabled, they, they tend to be viewed as more deserving. When we get down to the bottom and we're just talking about adults who don't have children, they're the least deserving. We really shouldn't be providing them with social assistance. So these ideas, these, this stigmatization, um, exist today, right? And it manifests in our social policy, right? So when we look at the group that often many people think of as least deserving, able-bodied adults, they tend to have limited help across different kinds of social welfare policies um, in contemporary times, right? Relative to other groups. And so many of them, in fact, the largest group are the group that are just not getting any help. They're not getting food stamps, they're not getting TANF, they're not getting Medicaid, just nothing. Oh, but it's back, right? Um, and this, this reflects a certain continuity and ideas about who is deserving, and that manifests in our policy. It always has, and it continues to now, and this is an example of that. Coming down the home stretch here, I promise, another key policy issue is the role of government. And so this is, a, this is an underlying kind of tension, right? But how big should government be, and how much should, how much should government be doing, right? As late as 1929, the federal government had essentially no role, at least as far as across sort of subsets of the population in providing what was then called relief or aid, right? So they, there was no major social policy or very little of it. Um, 
Herbert Hoover, and this is in 1929, after the, um, uh, you know, right as we're, we're beginning to, to enter the Great Depression, says economic depression cannot be cured by legislative action or executive pronouncement. Economic wounds must be healed by the action of the cells of the economic body, the producers and consumers themselves. And that was reflected in, in Hoover's response to the Depression. He said, oh, let's give money to the railroads, right? But this is not going to be fixed through government policy. This is going to be fixed through business and consumers. And so what role should the government play, right? And correspondingly, what role should the market play? What role should the economy play, right? Michael Katz, a really well-known um, scholar of poverty, says, He's talking about the Industrial Revolution and says, well, there was no clear line during that time that separated ordinary working people from those in need of help because episodic destitution was one structural result of the great social and economic transformation in American life. Well, this was true not just during the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, but, at, but consistently throughout American history. But this is not always acknowledged, right? Often it's not acknowledged in the policy landscape. And so there's this tension between what role the government should be playing and what, what the role of the economy is in terms of causing poverty, right? Um, and a lack of acknowledgement of the role of the economy leads to policies like uh, TANF, right? That is a product of welfare reform that are not responsive to the economy, right? So anti-poverty and poverty reduction policies should be responsive to the economy. When unemployment goes up, when jobs are harder to find, more people will need benefits. But that's not how TANF looks. It's not how it responds. And part of that is around tensions about the role of the government and the structure and role of the economy. And then, of course, uh, there's federalism, which is what my book focuses on. And I had to get it on a slide because I try to get it on every slide. And this map is a map of, I'll use Medicaid because that's what a lot of my work is about, of which states have expanded Medicaid, and it's a really recent map, so you can see that. Where's Virginia? I, I did this, yes, Virginia. Virginia is in the light blue. The light blue are the states that have adopted expansion, right? Virginia is not 100% of the way there, but Kaiser Family Foundation was nice enough to update their graph this morning. Appreciated that. Um, but this, the focus of my book, and but more broadly, because it's beyond Medicaid, the idea that in this country, what you get is so closely connected to where you live, and in ways that have literally life and death implications. And that has been the case in US anti-poverty or social policy from the very beginning. And it continues to be a, a defining aspect of social policy in the US. And part of what I do in the book is thinking about what the implications of that are for democracy. And so we end up with policies like block grants that give states lots of, lots of um, leeway, lots of discretion, right? Take a big chunk of money and do what you will with it. We trust that it will be fine, right? And there will be very little oversight. Um, and so what we see, though, that happens when we do this is that it's actually a mechanism of retrenchment. Over time, the funding for block grants just goes down and down and down and down and down. This is not a mechanism for giving more people what they need. It's a mechanism for giving fewer people what they need. Um, and often federalism works that way, although it doesn't necessarily have to. And the last thing I'll point out um, is that bias and exclusion, these are really core parts of the social policy landscape in the US and always have been. I just published a piece last week in Vox about uh, racism in American healthcare. And I was really focused on uh, Michigan and these work requirements that they had proposed. Um, and they obviously proposed in a way that was structured to disproportionately benefit 
um, white people who were living in rural counties as opposed to African Americans living in cities. And I use that as a springboard for thinking more broadly. We could look historically at US healthcare policy and we will see race rear its ugly head. Um, and academics have, have, have observed this in, in other places besides just the realm of health policy. And so the issue of bias and exclusion, right? If we think about immigrants or we think about other groups that are consistently either excluded or discriminated against, it's an important facet of the structure of social policy. Of course there's more, but I have to stop talking <laughs> because it's gonna be inconsiderate if I don't. And these brilliant folks have many more insights to share with us. Thank you so much. And we're gonna hear, we're gonna hear more from all the panelists um, as we go through. So that's the, there'll be more. There's a, so much more that I personally wanna hear. Um, so next we're gonna hear from Professor David Super. He is from Georgetown, and much of his scholarship focuses on social welfare and policy. He's also a, a legal scholar. I don't know if I mentioned that. And uh, Professor Super is going to speak about um, SNAP and work rules and some of the things that are going on today in that area. Thank you. Thank you very much. It thinks yeah, working? It sounds like Okay, good. Um, thanks very much for coming. I know uh, it's a busy time of year. I appreciate your taking time to, to come here. Um, there was a time in Washington when uh, debates about social welfare policy took a great deal for granted. We wanted to do something about poverty. We had different views. Uh, they might be regional, they might be partisan, they might be ideological about what to do about it. But the basic assumption that we were going to be trying to be helpful in some meaningful way to low-income people was a given. Um, that changed uh, in 1995 with the contract with America um, that was the successful election platform uh, that Newt Gingrich and House Republicans ran on and that after the fact Senate Republicans um, followed in on and that Bill Clinton elected not to um, aggressively challenge. Uh, the agenda instead became how much one could dismantle programs uh, initially, dismantling programs to free up money for large tax cuts. Uh, eventually, the politics changed such that you actually don't have to pay for large tax cuts, as we demonstrated again uh, in December. Um, and so it was cutting programs really for the sake of cutting programs because of fundamental disagreement that that is a legitimate role for government. Um, so I think you have to look at what happened in 95 and 96 and look at what is being attempted right now, not as approaches to social welfare policy, but as means of ending social welfare policy or ending it in, in any form that is recognizable to someone uh, looking at this country uh, between the New Deal and 1995. Um, and uh, because there's polling and focus groups clearly indicate that the American public is not prepared to say, okay, it was a big mistake, let's just stop, you end up needing to hide what you're doing. And we see very consistent patterns, like continuity, again, very clearly, um, in looking at indirect ways of doing what the American public will not support if you try to do it directly. In particular, programs need at least three things to function. They need a structure, an administration, a basic set of ground rules, and so on. Uh, they need money. 
um, and they need administration. Um, if you pull the plug on any one of those things, the program will stagger briefly and then collapse. Um, we saw that in 95, 96 with respect to aid to families with dependent children. They did not attack its funding, its federal funding at all, and state funding only modestly, um, but they attacked its structure. They liquidated the structure of uh, aid to families with dependent children, turned it into a big pile of money going to the states, and sure enough, the other two components quickly collapsed um, um, in response. Um, with um, uh, a check but no structure, states diverted money to lots and lots of things other than low-income people, the fraction of money uh, in the TANF block grant going to um, serving low-income people sh uh, shrinks almost every year uh, and is now a tiny fraction of what it was before. Um, the fraction, the number of people receiving cash assistance is a fraction of the number of people in poverty was 68% when we started this. Today it's 23%, gone down by almost two-thirds. Um, and uh, that's also a reflection of um, with the states pulling the money out to do other things. And I don't mean other things for poor people necessarily. Um, I mean many fine marinas have been built um, uh, um, with, with money that once went to low-income people. Um, the states uh, tightened up uh, and made access to the program all but impossible to the same effect. A similar effort was attempted in 95-96 against food stamps. Um, there again, the effort was to convert it to a block grant, and that was defeated just barely um, by effectively one vote in the Senate. Um, and uh, the trade-off, the way the program was saved, was by sacrificing funding, huge, vast, uh, across-the-board cuts, some targeted cuts, lots of across-the-board cuts uh, were accepted uh, to free up vast amounts of uh, money for tax cuts and other things as a price for winning over enough Republicans to defeat the effort to liquidate the program altogether with the block grant. Um, similarly, there were efforts um, to make program accessibility much, much more difficult um, with um, the most uh, aggressive or direct effort being targeted at groups that were seen as being least sympathetic. Um, a direct attack on the eligibility, very sweeping attack on the eligibility of immigrants. Uh, the New York Times said Congress throwing illegal immigrants off of food stamps. Uh, no, that's not who was thrown off at all. Undocumented immigrants had never been eligible for food stamps. Um, and this was not saying, oh, they're slipping through the cracks. This was a funnel uh, assault on, um, on legal immigrants. The other group that was targeted um, for eligibility, dr dramatic eligibility cutbacks, were childless adults. Um, the uh, acronym, and I don't know that this is altogether accurate, uh, accidental was able-bodied adults without dependents, which sounds, which you convert to an acronym as ABOD, it sounds dirty. Um, and uh, the idea, I think, was very much to send that message, and the provision involved was titled a work requirement. And here, rhetoric is absolutely crucial. 
um, we're cutting off people who don't meet the work requirement. Well, who would those people be? By definition, they'd be lazy people, right? And why should we be picking up the tab for lazy people who won't meet the work requirement? Except that's not true. Um, what we're talking about here is people who couldn't find jobs, or people who couldn't find regular jobs, or people who couldn't find regular jobs in the above ground economy where the employer was willing to put up with fairly onerous paperwork requirements to help the worker prove that they were working. Um, it doesn't sound as good, yeah, we cut off the folks that couldn't find work. Uh, we cut off the folks that were scrambling to, 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 to knit together uh, one uh, occasional job after another because they couldn't find anything regular. That doesn't sound quite as, as rough and tough. I like it better to say, oh, we're cutting off the people that violate the work requirements. Um, and uh, the, uh, initially, um, states were assuming, um, contrary to what the law said, that these really were old-fashioned work requirements where we tell you to work, and if you work, you work, and if you don't, we cut you off uh, because you refuse to work. And states were terribly afraid that if people were cut off without being offered the chance to work, that the states would be blamed. There was a provision in the law that allowed states to seek waivers for areas with high unemployment, so-called insufficient jobs, um, and roughly a third of the people subject to this provision um, lived in areas that had waivers. Um, the most prominent area that was eligible for a waiver but did not have one is the one we're sitting in. Thank you, Mayor Giuliani. Um, <laughs> It's, it's nice that the broader <coughs> society is getting to see what a real gem he is these days. <laughs> um, um, but, but people in, in New York and people who cared about low-income people, this was never a secret. Um, and um, uh, uh, as time went on, um, well-funded uh, groups uh, associated with the American Legislative Exchange Council have been um, heating up the rhetoric of so-called work requirements and more and more states have passed laws uh, prohibiting the state from getting waivers for which it is eligible and being quite comfortable cutting off people um, who are um, fully eligible, fully willing to work, uh, but the state's unwilling to provide them a, um, a job. People in the states have been afraid of the work requirement rhetoric, and uh, these laws have gone through largely without contest, and we have an enormous reduction in the number of areas, including extraordinarily poor job-deprived areas that don't have waivers because no one wants to talk about work requirements. Well, that sent a message to Paul Ryan and to Congress, and they are now doubling down on so-called work requirements. Um, their proposal now would cut people off, not just the ABODs, filthy ABODs, um, but, the, uh, but um, uh, large swaths of food stamp recipients, now SNAP recipients, if they were not working every single month. And to add to that, we would add a requirement that you monthly reestablish your eligibility. So you must both work and work your way through the bureaucracy uh, every month in order to qualify. Um, the, uh, they talk about, oh, the cuts in the bill are fairly modest. That's because they are projected to be a vast increase in bureaucracy, a huge shift from benefits for people uh, to, um, uh, to bureaucratic overhead. 
Um, and the Congressional Budget Office has correctly recognized this between the sham as what it is. Paul Ryan says, oh, we're going to help people get a job and help people get the skills they need so they can be self-sufficient. It's now going to be $30 per person per month. I know a lot of really good training programs that charge tuition of $30 per person per month, don't you? Um, and the Congressional Budget Office estimates that of the several million people who would need work uh, slots to retain their eligibility and be unable to find private jobs, that even after 10 years, um, states would uh, create only 110,000 slots. So the vast majority of people would basically be cut off food assistance without uh, any opportunity to work even though they're willing to. That's not people that are sanctioned for saying no. That's people that never got the chance. There's been a special provision since uh, 1997 in the Food and Nutrition Act giving states a whole lot of extra money uh, if they promise not to cut people off uh, on the three-month time limit uh, for the childless adults uh, without giving them a, a work slot. All of six states have bothered to do that. The rest of them, uh, and there's some indication that some of those six states are lying, um, uh, the rest of the states are freely admitting, yep, we cut people off without having a chance to work, and that would be the result of this pending farm bill. I think what the, uh, and I should say, please don't be distracted by its failure a couple of weeks ago. Sadly, that wasn't on the merits. Um, that was an intra-Republican party spat about other things. Uh, that bill will be back. Um, and although the Senate will not pass something quite so ghastly, who knows what happens uh, when the two bills go to conference and agricultural interests uh, and right-wing funders um, start putting pressure on them to move um, some sort of a bill. Um, what we would see if this bill becomes law is effectively the end of SNAP in the same way that the 96 welfare law brought the end of cash assistance for low-income families. It's not a different approach. It's not benefit cuts. It's dismantling um, much of the structure um, that makes the program available to people, uh, and the result, uh, the result would be not more work, uh, but a great deal more hardship. Thank you, David. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, before we move on, um, would you also uh, tell the audience a little bit about the executive order that was issued on April 10th that reflects the Trump administration, as opposed to Congress, the Trump administration's uh, effort to expand work requirements as well? Sure. Um, the, uh, many of these programs are heavily constrained by statute. Happily, SNAP is one of them. Um, some of these programs, uh, anti-poverty programs, the statutes are rather loose. And what the president has said to agencies across government is uh, that they should try to cut benefits off for people who are not working um, as much as they can. So I think it is fair to say that SNAP is really ground zero for this fight because it the coincidence of the calendar mean it's up in Congress, but the administration's made clear this isn't just about SNAP. It's absolutely about assisted housing. As we've seen with uh, the Medicaid waiver fights, uh, it's very much about this for Medicaid. 
Um, and it's basically going to be this way about just about every poverty program. And again, the language of work requirements has worked for them. People on our side don't want to take them on. Um, and so all they have to do to liquidate the program is to call it a work requirement when you, ter when you terminate people who are unemployed. Um, so we will be seeing this. The executive order directs the agencies to move in this direction. HUD is certainly working on that uh, with housing programs. I think a lot of people are waiting to see what happens with SNAP. If you can do it with SNAP through Congress, um, then you can liquidate anything and probably will. You won't liquidate things that have very strong provider backing, like the uh, nursing home component of Medicaid, but you'll, and the hospital component, but you'll liquidate most of the rest of it, um, or not. And uh, I'm very much hoping that it's or not. Thank you. So next we have Mara Udelman, who is the managing attorney of the DC office of the National Health uh, Law Project and HELP. And she is a national expert on health law and a lawyer. Um, and Mara, can you talk to us about Medicaid work requirements? David teed up and probably saved me a good couple of minutes, so I really appreciate that. Or just gave me a couple of minutes to go more in depth on Medicaid. Um, I want you to have a picture in your mind of Paul Ryan when he was in college. <laughs> sitting around in a kegger dreaming of entitlement reform. This is what he has said. He literally has said he's been dreaming about doing entitlement reform since keggers in college, which scares me that anyone is thinking about this when they're having the kegger. But anyway, um, this has been the longstanding goal of many Republicans, um, is to do exactly what David said, is to dismantle many of these safety net, social welfare programs in any way possible. Um, and the way that they're doing it in Medicaid or attempting to do it in Medicaid right now is using this exact same rhetoric that they've been using in food stamps and they were using in the, the TANF debate. So um, we have to make sure the program serves those for who it was originally intended. Um, the able-bodied should have to work. We have to return it to its mission. Um, states know what best. We have to give them their little laboratories. We have to give them flexibility to figure it out. Um, you know, they know what's best for their residents. Um, and work is good for your health, and so therefore work requirements will actually help you um, be get healthy, stay healthy, be healthy, et cetera, and move off the program. Um, if I was in a different company, I'd use some more choice words, but we'll leave it at that for now, um, because what we're seeing again is sort of this wholesale attack on the Medicaid program. Um, Congress did attempt to put a work requirement into the Medicaid statute as part of the ACA repeal and replace last year. Um, it failed last year. There's attempts, actually, some some white papers coming out by some conservative groups probably in the next couple of weeks to try to revive the attempts to repeal the ACA, Graham-Cassidy, you know, zombie bill 37.0, whatever version they're at right now, um, that will likely also include, again, attempts to block grant or per capita cap Medicaid and implement work requirements. But what we're really seeing is more of an administrative attack right now on the Medicaid program. Um, and the reason we're seeing a Medicaid, uh, a Medicaid attack um, is because of a provision in the Social Security Act called Section 1115, which allows states to request waivers of Medicaid requirements from HHS. And um, 
this provision's been around, you know, pretty much since the dawn of the Medicaid program. Actually, it, it pre-existed Medicaid because 1115 also gives flexibility to have waivers and other programs in the Social Security Act. And when Medicaid was added to the Social Security Act, references were also included in Section 1115 to allow waivers of, of certain Medicaid provisions. Um, this administration is working with many of the states that on um, your lovely Kaiser map um, either didn't expand Medicaid or expanded Medicaid very um, uh, under duress and now want to try to find ways to get rid of um, large numbers of people who are on the Medicaid program. So while we have 33 states, including I think it's Virginia as of today and Maine, who were just waiting for the governor to leave so actually they can implement the uh, um, referendum that passed with the voter support, um, about 12 states right now have requested or received approval to implement work requirements and other restrictions in the Medicaid program. And I'm going to talk mostly about work requirements, but it's not just work requirements. And so as, as David set out, when you're talking about um, you know, sort of the three-legged stool, stool of many of these programs of, of structure, administration, and money, um, many of the waiver proposals that we're seeing, they have to be budget neutral to the federal government to be approved, but they're not actually saving a lot of money um, because, as, as David said, in, in the food stamp and what we're seeing in Medicaid is it's going to create lots more bureaucracy and lots more structure um, at the, the loss of, at least in Kentucky, estimating about 100,000 people will lose their Medicaid coverage. So we're adding systems and computers and bureaucracy and taking away health care from hundreds of thousands of individuals. So in order to get a waiver of these Medicaid requirements, this is a state makes a request to the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS has to approve it. There are parameters for that. So very quickly, I'm not going to talk about the litigation initially, I'm going to talk about litigation in sort of the second half um, of, of when we talk about advocacy strategies, but a waiver must be an experiment, a pilot, or a demonstration. There's only certain provisions of the Medicaid Act that can be waived, and they're all contained in one, um, one provision of the Medicaid Act. The experiment must be likely to promote Medicaid's objectives, and the waiver must be limited to the extent and period necessary to carry out the experiment. So work requirements kind of seems antithetical to a program when you're talking about providing health insurance to people. And that's one of our biggest arguments. But it is very hard, as David pointed out, with what we've seen in the SNAP program, work requirements don't sound bad. You know, we all understand why they're bad, but when you're sort of making the political debates and where the tenor of this country is right now, um, there is a feeling of the us versus them, or the worthy poor and the unworthy poor. And, you know, if you are pregnant, or you're a child, or you have a disability, or you're a senior, well, that's who Medicaid was originally intended for. Those were the categories that have existed since 1965. Those folks are okay. But when the Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid and gave states, actually, originally it was a, a mandatory requirement to expand Medicaid to what we would have called, as David said, the ABOD and the SNAP program, but basically non-pregnant, childless, non-disabled adults in the Medicaid program, um, you know, first the Supreme Court took away the requirement, so it became optional for states. So we saw many of the states that are sort of of the bluer variety politically quickly expand, and many of the red states take a long time or, or not expand at all. Um, and now what we've seen is 
um, an attempt by many of those red states that expanded to come back and say, well, actually, we want to add requirements. And so they're not necessarily getting rid of their Medicaid expansion per se, um, but effectively they're going to do that through these waivers by implementing these barriers for people to be able to continue on the program. So, um, and unfortunately, we also have states that haven't expanded Medicaid that are also seeking work requirements. So states that, you know, the eligibility for Medicaid is minimal. Um, and they're adding work requirements, they want to add work requirements there. So far, HHS has not yet approved a state to have work requirements that hasn't expanded Medicaid, but wait and see. Um, well, you know, we're going to see what happens in the coming weeks and months on that. Um, but some of the things that Kentucky has done, I'm going to focus most of um, what I talk about on Kentucky because that was the first state out of the box to get an approval. Um, and we did immediately file suit, and so the litigation is ongoing, and that's what I'll talk about later. But um, they talk about work requirements, and they talk about a community engagement. So if you can't find a paying job 20 hours a week, well, you can go volunteer someplace. Um, you here in New York have a lot of good experience with how that works. My sister actually um, was the executive director of Community Voices Heard um, and was one of the organizations among many others and probably many of you in this room who fought against the welfare to work provisions. Oh, you didn't know that? You're Sandra's sister? I'm Sandra's yeah. sister. Jane <laughs> 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 Udelman, yeah, it's kind of uncommon, sorry. <laughs> Usually she gets that because she's now working on health in D.C., so it's kind of fun now. She's like, you're Mara's sister? I'm like, in New York. I'm like, yes, I'm Sandra's sister. Um, but you have a long history of understanding why forcing people to take jobs, one, takes away jobs from agency workers who are there. Two, it's sort of, you know, the unions are calling it indentured servitude for all intents and purposes. And, you know, three, it's not necessarily serving the purposes of the program for either side of the benefit. So, um, you know, we really have to look at that issue, but also some of the other provisions are lockouts. So if you don't meet the work requirements, now you're not going to get health care for six months. Um, waiting periods, um, premiums, even on the very lowest income people. So in Kentucky, even someone at 0% of the poverty level is expected to pay a premium. And normally you can't charge premiums on low income people in Medicaid. Um, eliminating transportation and eliminating retroactive coverage. So that whole host taken together and the bureaucracy of trying to prove that you have worked 20 hours every single week and if you don't meet the requirement or your income changes, you're supposed to know when it affects your eligibility and then go and report changes as well. Um, there's no way most people can do it and it's not going to be effective and people are going to lose their eligibility really through no fault of their own and their inability to meet these requirements. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, they're also trying, you know, adding premiums, adding co-pays for the non-emergency use of the emergency room. Um, we could just go on and on. Other states are proposing drug testing. Other states are proposing um, other types of waiting periods and lockouts and all kinds of other stuff. So overall, what we're seeing with this administration is obviously <laughs> a willingness to go where prior administrations wouldn't go that they wouldn't approve work requirements, they wouldn't approve some of these more restrictive lockouts and premiums on lower income people. This administration is willing to go there. And once one state gets it, you then say the next state, ooh, I want more. Um, and so that's what we saw with some of the um, waivers actually under that the Obama administration approved, but I th certainly think we'll continue to see this now. So state gets a work requirement saying 20 hours a week. Well, some states are now upping that. I think Michigan was 25, 29. 29. They well, they've, they've taken yeah. it down now. But. Um, and they'll just keep going. 
Um, and then also when you when you look at the fact like Michigan did originally um, was going to propose work requirements for um, those in the urban areas and not those in the rural areas. Also just looking at the Medicaid population in general, and this goes to the whole history and probably addressed in your book, um, of just, you know, let's go through the whole history of this country and racism and where the wealth is and where the educational opportunities are and where living is and social determinants of health, and we could have a whole panel on that. Um, but a huge percentage of people on Medicaid are people of color. And so again, we're just, who's worthy in this country? And what are we doing to these social safety net, both for low income and disproportionately people of color because they haven't had the opportunities because of all the other institutional racism and everything in this country going on. So um, I will leave it at that, but I think it really just shows what we're seeing is starting in you know 96 and continuing through today, it's just this constant attack on these social safety net programs and reinventing the same tired tropes over and over able-bodied, um, work requirements, the worldly poor, um, you know, the who's eligible, who, who should get these benefits. And we have to be better at fighting back every step of the way. Thank you very much. Um, so next we're going to hear from Jackie Vimo, who oversees the Economic Justice Program at the National Immigration Law Project and has her PhD in politics. Um, Jackie has been working as an advocate in the area of immigrant rights, public health, LGBTQ rights, and anti-poverty policy for almost two decades and brings to us both a scholarly perspective on her topic, which she will talk about, and uh, also an activist perspective. So we're really lucky to have her. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Yeah, this is like having all the different parts of me in the same room. It's sort of weird. <laughs> yeah. um, I also didn't know that that back in the 90s when we were fighting Giuliani, that I was fighting with your sister. So <laughs> that's just really weird. Um, my, my brain is exploding. So I want to, I know that we've been doing a lot of talking, so I just want to um, just kind of get a sense in the room for, of who's here. So how many folks here are attorneys? Okay, and how many people are here public benefits attorneys? Immigration attorneys? The rest of you guys do contracts law, I guess, or just <laughs> <laughs> wandered in because you thought there was a free buffet. Um, and how many folks here are non-attorneys? Okay, great. So I just wanted to get a sense of who is in the room. So I wanted to just situate sort of where we are, um, and, and I'm going to talk about a particular impending threat um, that I'm going to ask you all to weigh in on shortly, um, but in the, in the historical context and also talk about the specifics of the law. Um, uh, so. Similar to Medicaid and our safety net in general, there's been a devolution of uh, the of immigration policy, immigrant policy making from the federal level to the state level in recent decades since Congress has been incapable of passing federal immigration reform. Um, and, and so I'm actually at the intersection of immigration and welfare. So I am the third rail of the third rail. <laughs> no one ever wants me in the room. When I'm in DC, the anti-poverty advocates don't want me talking about their issues. And the immigrant <laughs> advocates don't want me talking about poverty or welfare because that I will tank both of their campaigns. So actually, the, my, my most frequent- Please don't let you come to DC. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, my, my most frequent request is, you know, how can I support the, the food stamp issues? You cannot talk about it at all. <laughs> As 
<laughs> as the National Immigration Law Center. Um, so, so you have, so I mean, it's been interesting to watch sort of as these kind of different levels uh, uh, occur, but as the movement has shifted um, downwards, you really have this patchwork, right? So if you're in New York, um, uh, you know, you have a green card, um, you are uh, with it, you've been here in the country less than five years, uh, you are eligible for, uh, you know, a lot of different programs, including Medicaid. But if you cross through the Lincoln Tunnel and you go to New Jersey, for whatever reason you might want to do that, um, you would suddenly lose eligibility. And that's actually because of uh, our state constitution as well and a really great Supreme Court decision from 2001. Um, but similarly, if you're in California and you're undocumented and you're a child, you have access to CHIP. Cross the state line to Nevada, no chip for you. So we have tremendous amounts of inequality, and as you might guess, um, that the map of, uh, of the different benefits that are uh, open to immigrants maps pretty well onto party polarization. So the, the bluer the state, the more generous the benefits for immigrants, the redder the state, the more miserly, and in some, most cases have really nothing. Um, so I, I think that I just wanted to situate this conversation as I talk about public charge in the context of this history of um, what I call the three Ds, building on uh, Professor Mishner's uh, discussion of uh, deservingness and dependency. For immigrants, I call it deservingness, dependency, and disease, the three Ds, right? Um, which is how our immigration and our public benefits programs have been shaped to, uh, to basically expel bodies that they consider foreign um, that bring contagion to the, the body politic, um, either in terms of uh, political views, um, but more often than not in terms of race and color. Um, and and that, that that really has been the frame um, when we think about uh, both welfare policy and immigration policy, and it and it really becomes exacerbated at that intersection. Um, so uh, so the way that things have worked. Um, again, is that uh, we've had for immigration policy, when you look at well, what benefits are available to immigrants, and I'm talking about both undocumented folks and also here who are lawfully present because 96 was a big uh, intersection both for immigration reform and also for um, uh, welfare reform. So uh, basically the majority of programs, there are, there's federal government allows states to make decisions, and that's really where the states, where the decisions are being made, and that's really where the inequality happens. Public benefits eligibility determinations are primarily made at the state and local level. Um, and so pre pretty much the policy we have, the way I describe our, uh, our welfare policy to immigrants is women and children first, um, but actually in most cases women and children only. Um, and, and this really, uh, you know, reframes this narrative of women being as uh, intrinsically deserving or deserving by proxy of the fact that they are the future mothers of, uh, the mothers of future citizens of the United States. And the mechanisms through which states um, are general, uh, cover uh, women and children are generally contingent upon uh, the fact that women will be, if the woman is pregnant, it's presumed that her child will be born a natural born citizen <laughs> and therefore because of the 14th amendment um, will have rights but the woman herself you know has rights only that are derivative from her fetus um, so I think that that's just also an interesting kind of frame for where immigrant access to public benefits functions legally and also in the po in the popular uh, imaginary so you know when we see great disparities across state lines I think it's also not surprising that we also see them primarily impacting Latinos and communities of color um, and, and that that's really how those programs um, and the immigration restrictions have worked but I'm here to talk about public charge um, really quickly so that I, I just wanted to sort of frame that I can do it really quickly I've done I do public charge talk so often that I can do it in my sleep so how many people here know what public charge is 
Okay, so you, we don't need to do this part, right? Um, how many people know about the new upcoming changes that are coming? Yeah, I will, I will, I will, I will. I just want to, I want to have a sense of, of knowledge. So, so quickly, public charge was introduced um, in the Immigration Act of 1882. Uh, it's a doctrine that states that uh, individuals can be denied entry to the United States or denied the ability to adjust their status um, based on whether or not they're considered someone who is primarily subsistent on the government um, for their uh, subsistence. So um, it's interesting to note that actually historically public charge determinations were made at the state level um, in the 1800s, and there's a great new book um, by Hidetaka, uh, uh, I forget his last name, um, but that's called, uh, uh, anyway, I lost it, but it, there's a great new book about public charge if you want to read a whole book about it from the 1800s, um, and that's things I do on the weekends. Um, so, uh, um, so the, it's, the, the people really were left, and the reason that they were made, these decisions were made at the state level was because it was the states that were going to have to pick up the tab. So as folks were getting off of the boats, um, they, had, they, would give the, they would have to decide whether or not people were defective. Um, and that, that assessment was made, um, and the, the assessment was made based on whether or not they were going to have to incur costs for medical care that would actually have to be paid by the state or locality. Therefore, it's, and, and that's similar to what's going to be happening today. So I just want to kind of situate the fact that this really becomes the burden of the states and the localities. So what is public charge? So public charge is these, this particular uh, immigration law term, and we're, uh, we're seeing some changes, and it's going it, to get worse. So long story short, there's two points at which a public charge determination is made. An immigration lawyer can tell you this. One is when you're applying to enter the United States, and two, when you're applying to adjust status for your green card. Um, Historically, deportations based on public charge have been rare from the federal government. Actually, there are quite a few uh, that were done by states. Um, again, if you read this book, you'll learn a lot about it. Um, uh, I'm not getting any royalties from it, I swear, uh, <laughs> since I didn't even give you the name. Um, uh, really effective um, seller here. Um, so uh, currently, um, and you know, one of the things that's happening is a lot of us are watching the work that we've done over the last two decades all be dismantled bit by bit. And one thing I might want to think about is we've all, those of us who've worked in public benefits and immigration, certainly those who've worked at the intersection, have done everything backdoor administratively through regulations. Uh, it's been amazing what attorneys, <laughs> like many of them sitting here, have done um, you know, to, to kind of ease what the statutory, within the statutory language to sort of ease the pain. Um, but now because they were done administratively, a lot of those things are being undone administratively. Um, and it is sort of like, you know, Groundhog Day of like Giuliani popping up like over and over again and we're having to fight all the fights all over again. Um, but so in the 90s, we uh, were able to restrict the definition of public charge to only look at two particular benefits, cash benefits um, and institutionalization for long-term care, so cash and care. So those were the only benefits, and to this day, remain the only benefits that are considered as part of a public charge test. Um, it, it, there's also a totality of circumstances test, right? So that's, uh, you can't just look at whether or not someone's used a public benefit. They have to look at your age, health, family status, your financial status, education, um, and also the affidavit of support. And I'll get to that just really quickly and, and, and uh, get to the punchline, which is, so the affidavit of support, of course, is uh, when your family member or another person uh, sponsors you for your green card. Usually having a very wealthy family member um, when you were applying to enter the United States was sufficient to overcome any public charge concerns. That all changed in January. How many people knew that? 
Interesting. Okay. Um, so back in January, and actually a lot of us missed it too. Um, uh, we were a few weeks late on this. Um, I don't really know how that happened. Um, they changed language in the uh, in the Foreign Affairs Manual, the FAM, um, to redefine public charge. To I mean, long story short, to shift the emphasis from the sponsor and the affidavit of support to the applicant, him or herself. Um, so before, like I said, before, if I were married to Mark Zuckerberg, which would be probably sad for my partner and his wife and, um, you know, a lot of people, including myself, um, uh, uh, although I guess he's kind of tanking right now. I might pick someone else. But, you know, if I, if, if I had Mark Zuckerberg who was sponsoring me from immigration and he had an affidavit of support for me, that would be sufficient um, for me to pretty much be sure I wasn't going to have any public charge concerns to come into the United States. That's changed. Um, again, only emphasizing people coming from abroad. Uh, right now, there's a shift to the applicant. The applicant now has to prove that they have employment in the United States, that they have unsubsidized health insurance in the United States, um, and that they don't meet the public charge test. Again, public charge still remains the, the cash and long-term care, but we're seeing is people living with AIDS who actually were given permission to exit the United States, have their whole families here, being stopped at Ciudad Juarez, um, and not being allowed to come back in because they don't have unsubsidized health insurance. So we have actually cases, um, and we're working with a lot of New York groups on this, of people that actually left thinking they could just leave and come back to their families, and they've all been stopped. Um, so that's already happening, just to be really clear. And we have a lot of other cases of folks um, that have been stopped because they did not uh, have a, pr a job uh, guarantee and unsubsidized health insurance. Um, there are other things that I'm sure will pop up, and the consular processing is like a black hole. Um, but that's already happening, um, and just want to note that we've already seen terrible changes. Um, the next piece, and this is the big thing, and I'm, I'm done now after this, is that we started to get, I mean, it's, it's amazing in this administration, and we learn everything from Vox.com, and not all of it is well written as, as <laughs> Professor Mishner's um, piece on, on you know, race and, and health care. Um, uh, we got it leaked to Vox.com, uh, a draft executive order um, in January of 2017, um, and that that draft executive order sought to radically redefine public charge. Um, it was leaked as part of four other executive orders. The other ones were the DACA rescission, the Muslim ban, and other changes that actually also already, already happened to interior enforcement. So it's the fourth executive. When, you know, when, we go in, when I go into Senate offices and I say, I want to talk to you about this thing that I read on Vox.com, um, you know, uh, they say, well, we don't normally like, make decisions about federal policy, although that, that's actually changing now. They're like, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I don't check the federal register. Vox.com, um, you know, but you know, three of the four EOs have been signed. Um, well, it looks like they're not going to do it through executive order. They now uh, were anticipating a notice of public rulemaking in the Federal Register that um, is supposed to come out by July, um, which basically would expand public charge to include a much larger range of benefits. That would include health programs like Medicaid, CHIP, and ACA marketplace. Uh, subsidies so there's this perverse logic so if you're here you're actually even though we that tax reform bill did get rid of the penalty we still have an individual mandate so you're legally obligated to have health insurance but if you get health insurance you could jeopardize your ability to stay in the country or your ability for your family member to stay in the country um, uh, uh, tax credits uh, nutrition programs like snap and wick housing uh, LIHEAP energy assistance and transportation service and here's the the probably the, the worst part although all of it's terrible is benefits received by dependents and that includes U.S. citizen children. So if you are a, uh, someone who's sponsoring a, a, a father or a mother or you know, a family member who's coming in and you have a U.S. citizen kid who's on Medicaid or CHIP, 
you could jeopardize the ability of that family to stay together. So we're putting parents in the impossible situation of trying to decide whether or not their families are going to stay together or whether or not they feed and provide health care for their children. That's what this uh, th this piece is about. To, there are some pieces that are exempt, and I, you know, we could, and, and it, it, there still remains a totality of circumstances test. And what we're hearing across the country is immigration attorneys are telling everyone to get off benefits. Um, and what we're hearing actually here about um, uh, at HRA at HASA is that actually some caseworkers are telling people living with AIDS to get off of benefits um, that they're on ADAP. Um, and uh, I, I hate to always say this, but it's very true. Pe dead people don't win immigration cases. Um, and you know, when immigration attorneys are trying to make decisions about the kind of advice to give their clients, um, you know, I really do. Those of you who are practicing, you know, want to just—it's up to the you know client to decide, but just to have a more kind of holistic approach because we're seeing you know, breast pumps being returned to WIC offices across the country. We're seeing people going in asking to get off of SNAP. We're seeing kids not showing up to school meals. This is already happening even though the, uh, this hasn't sort of been implemented yet. Um, and so, you know, just to, the final notice is to give you the scope of this. Under the current public charge determination, 4% of Americans would be subject to public charge. Under the newly revised definitions that we've seen leaked, Two out of five Americans would not be able to enter the country and would not be able to uh, uh, adjust their status. If we did a further look back period, one in every two Americans would fail a public charge test. So this is not sort of, you know, and, and, and again, going back to the, the sort of the origins of public charge, this is not an almshouse. This is not a poor house where a a purely destitute person is completely dependent on, on the, uh, the publics uh, for, for all of their needs. If they are, that's okay too. But we are talking about a transformed post-96 welfare system where many people are accessing these as income supports, working one or in some case two jobs, but also on SNAP and also need health care. So, so there's a you know, the, the, the frame of public charge as it was understood in the 1800s is really being misapplied to the current moment right now and to the current welfare system we have. Um, and, you know, who's going to pay for this? Cities, states. Um, and you know the health uh, of our country, and I, I think I'll just end by just saying that this is uh, legislation through the back door. We know that President Trump and Congress tried to pass the Raise Act, which would radically restrict how Im uh, our immigration system would work. Um, and this is basically through regulation trying to erase Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty of "Give me your tired, your poor," to "Give me your rich, your PhDs and STEM STEM degrees." And your Norwegians, um, and 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 that's actually something that President Trump has ex has explicitly said, and and I don't, I think that we need to listen to that and, and understand that when we talk about public charge, we're talking about making America white again. So. Thank you so much, Jackie. So so this is the state of social welfare policy under the Trump administration. You've heard. Uh, many of the most nefarious um, policies that are being considered and our, our, our government is actively trying to implement. And so now we're going to switch um, gears a little bit to talk about what <laughs> strategies we can use to fight back. And I think all of our panelists have a lot to contribute to this discussion. But we're going to start with presentations from two uh, litigators who've worked on a national scope and who've also worked here in New York. Um, we're going to start 
with Professor Lin Liu, who's at CUNY School of Law, where she teaches in the Economic Justice Project, um, where she works with clients impacted by the welfare work rules in New York firsthand, um, as well as some of the other issues we've discussed. And before she was at CUNY, she was a litigator at the National Law Center for Economic Justice, where she litigated welfare reform issues. So thank you, Professor Liu. So I have the, the solutions <laughs> section of the evening. Um, just to give, <laughs> to give you a little bit of um, my perspective sitting here, uh, it's been um, just a, an amazing panel to be part of. And it's um, quite humbling, because I sit here thinking about um, the decades of work that New York and New York City advocates have engaged in um, because of the, the unique situation that we have here compared with the rest of the country. Because of the New York State Constitution, because of the commitment to higher education, because of the commitment to immigrant labor and um, um, inclusion. Uh, so it, it's interesting also because uh, just a few years ago, when we got the news that the new um, uh, HRA commissioner was in fact going to be a former legal aid attorney, um, you know, we just had this, it was like a very long time coming. We had a little bit of a moment of, of um, optimism. <laughs> and so it's, it's strange because um, working on welfare issues has has put us in a situation where the opportunities for uh, legislation and advocacy at the federal level are limited. Because of that, we've had a lot of experience working with the city and state to try and get as much as we could possibly get from the city and state under um, devolution. And so I'm sitting here from this perspective of, you know, New York City has reasons to be hopeful. Uh, at the federal level, things are looking pretty bleak. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll tell you a few of the things that, um, that uh, uh, have been ongoing uh, at the city and state level on welfare work rules specifically, which may or may not have broader lessons to give for the, the Medicaid and SNAP and other fights that are to come. Uh, welfare work rules itself is uh, an interesting concept. Where I come from, I'm used to thinking of welfare as capital W welfare, meaning temporary assistance to needy families, um, the original public assistance program that distinguished between deserving and undeserving poor. Uh, single women with families, uh, with, with young children, widows, um, women whose husbands had either died or left them with young children to support. You know, those are the original sympathetic poor. Um, it used to be that we wouldn't really include other programs in that category because it was such a dirty word, and it's strange to me that Trump and uh, Paul Ryan have been the ones to make welfare a broader term 
There was a period of time when advocates seemed to be running away from the word welfare as much as possible, and hence we have all of these economic justice programs, which is great, <laughs> which is great. Um, but uh, now we're talking about a broader range of programs, programs which used to be untouchable or more popular or however you want to um, look at them. Now, now all of those are, are on the chopping block as well. And so when we think about what kinds of programs we're talking, uh, you know, we're, we're discussing, are we in a situation where the right is going to tell us that we have a very broad um, fabric of, of welfare in this country? We need to kind of take back that rhetoric and start talking about how, what all these programs have in common. Um, and uh, you know there are good reasons to uh, look at them together and not really think about you know what are all of the differences and distinctions among them. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is looking at what counts as work, what counts as something that will um, excuse you or or um, uh, allow you to keep your benefits. Um, even if you're income eligible. So initially, the main distinction was work that you do for your own family is not going to count, and then something that you do outside the home will count. So when we talked about welfare reform in the 1990s, um, the idea was to get all women caring for children um, to find outside childcare for their children so that they could follow these work requirements. Um, what, one of the big uh, questions that, that came out during that period of time was, are we gonna have genuine quality jobs or are we just going to have make work placements for people? And in New York City, we know that we had the WEP program for many, many years, um, which did not give all of the benefits and minimum wage protections um, that we would ask for in a job. And then the final piece was always, what if you want to work? What if you um, lack the training and the skills to get anything more than a minimum wage job um, or something uh, off the books? Could you count some type of vocational educational training program as part of your work requirement so that you could actually get yourself onto a career path that would lead your family to self-sufficiency instead of continual revolving door. Um, get a job, lose the job, go back on welfare, get a job, lose the job, go back on welfare. So one of the first groups um, that really felt the work rules uh, were students who were in the public school system in New York City, CUNY students. CUNY used to have tens of thousands of students who got themselves through college by relying on public assistance. They were uh, single parents with young children who were trying to get themselves the training that maybe they had to put on hold while they raised their young children, or they were young people who were living in families in which um, uh, they had relied on public assistance and they were trying to go to school and have a different kind of life for themselves. 
And what they saw earlier in the Giuliani administration was that they weren't going to be allowed to go to school. They were going to have to take the first job that came along, regardless of what it was, regardless of whether it had anything to do with their career plans. Um, and the CUNY administrators were uh, rightly alarmed. And um, students who found themselves being assigned to pick up trash in the parks um, were trying to fight back against these rules that weren't allowing them to think long term. So um, CUNY students started advocating for themselves and um, tried to get the word out that there are ways that you can still keep your public assistance case, go to school, and beat the system. And so there were um, attempts to use litigation at the state level and also legislation to try and improve the rules that students were subject to. But one of the main um, mechanisms that initially was available was working with legal representatives to um, get around the rules. And this is something that is difficult to talk about in, in a current climate where we're trying to work with the administration. Um, now that we've gotten through all of the different pieces, we've you know, gotten rid of WEP, we've gotten four-year college to be a quote-unquote countable activity. All of these legislative and administrative <coughs> solutions have um, succeeded and we're now faced with a situation where if the city and the state are going to provide genuine training and genuine placement opportunities, how are we going to help students continue to be full-time in school so that they can get the financial aid that they need? Um, in order to complete their degrees. So we've been working at three different levels, uh, doing administrative fair hearings one at a time, um, over and over again for anyone who's facing penalty or facing difficulties with um, getting their, uh, keeping their case open while they're trying to go through school. Um, we've been trying to work legislatively to get the state to um, change some of its restrictive rules. Um, and some of those include re relaxing some of the sanction rules, um, expanding the kinds of requirements that can count for the, for the work rules, um, and also trying to reduce the number of hours that parents have to work. Uh, so expanding the types of things that people do, reducing the number of hours, increasing the work supports that are supposed to help people keep their jobs, so transportation, childcare, all of those things. Um, the one legislate, uh, sorry, the one uh, litigation solution that has been quite successful in New York State was the um, Davila versus Eggleston lawsuit, which took many, many years to reach a settlement. Um, and uh, that lawsuit basically took a lot of resources simply to enforce what was already on the books. Um, it's difficult to do at the federal level because there are um, fewer and fewer substantive rules that you can challenge through the courts these days. Um, but the Davila lawsuit resulted in at least some type of recognition by the city that individual preferences need to be taken into account, that people's long-term plans need to be taken into account as well, and also that protections and accommodations that are given to parents of young children should also be granted to ABODs. Um, you know, uh, adults who, who do not yet have families, but maybe having families in the future, 
who grew up um, relying on public assistance to get them through high school um, and who have a brilliant career ahead of them uh, in higher education. Um, and we're just trying to keep plugging away at those small victories and, um, you know, teach people um, what some, some advocacy and some uh, creative collaboration with the state and city can do to get around some of the most strict federal rules. Thank you, Lynn. Okay, so now we're gonna hear our last presentation piece, and then we're gonna go through some rapid fire questions so that I can get out all the amazing things that I wanna get out um, from all of you. So uh, our last speaker is Catherine Diebler, who is currently a litigator at the National Center for Law and Economic Justice here in New York City, but the, uh, an organization that litigates cases across the country and is actually the firm that brought Goldberg v. Kelly, which even if your practice area is not um, public benefits, most people, if you're a lawyer, are, are uh, familiar with Goldberg v. Kelly. And Katie's also a member of our Social Welfare Committee, so we're particularly proud to have her on the panel. And uh, she has been litigating several actions in various states related to the SNAP ABOD rules, and I think is prepared to talk a little bit about that litigation. So thanks, Katie. Okay, so um, I'm gonna do a really quick introduction on the ABOD rules. Some of this has already been covered, but there's a couple more details that might be helpful for you to know to understand um, the lawsuits that we've brought. Um, so as, as the others have mentioned, ABOD stands for Able-Bodied able Adults Without Dependents. Um, and the rules originated in the 1990s with welfare reform, if we're gonna call it that. Um, they, hadn't, they hadn't been enforced for a while um, because of the rules that Professor Super referenced, where if there's a time of economic hardship, states can ask for waivers. Um, a large swath of the country was waived from 2008 and the events following until very, very recently. Um, so what you saw in 2016, end of 2015, beginning of 2016, was a lot of states re-implementing ABOD rules. Um, but it had been so long, it had been almost a decade, that a lot of them, they were basically implementing them from scratch. Um, like a lot of states have put new computer systems in place and new procedures in place um, in the intervening almost 10 years. Uh, so they're basically starting over. Um, so under the ABOD rules, uh, people who are determined to be ABODs, uh, and I, I also hate the term ABOD, I usually call people like persons, this person's determined to be ABODs or something like that. Just, it feels like slightly less dehumanizing, <laughs> um, but so um, people who are subject to these rules are people who are physically and mentally able to work, who don't have dependents, and who are between the ages of 18 and 55. Um, there's a number of exceptions, so like pregnant people are not subject to the ABOD rules. Um, people who are disabled are not subject to the rules, but also people who are maybe not have have not been determined to be disabled by any like government body, but who aren't able to work because of a physical or a mental 
health condition. Um, so like, you don't have to like, be on SSI to be exempt from the ABLAD rules. Um, but that means they're really complicated. <laughs> um, so like, obviously somebody who's on SSI, maybe you know, they just aren't an ABOD or they shouldn't be. They should get caught. They should be easy to screen. But for somebody who has um, a serious illness or um, like some sort of mental health issue that makes it hard for them to hold down a job but does not qualify them for any sort of government disability benefit, they shouldn't be subject to the rule, but somebody has to screen them. Somebody has to figure that out. Um, and that, that's, it's a complicated determination. It takes a lot of expertise. It takes a lot of work. Um, and it's, <laughs> what we've seen so far is mostly chaos um, on the state level in trying to make those determinations. Um, so for the people that the rules do apply to, they have to work an average of 20 hours of work a week in each month. Um, and the way these rules work is if you are identified as an ABOD, you have to work, you cannot work for three months out of a 36 month period of time. And once you hit those three months, you don't get any more benefits until the end of that 36 month period of time. Um, so like there are people who lost benefits when the rules first went into effect in New York at the beginning of 2016 who will not be eligible for benefits again until the beginning of 2019. And there's no, like, the only way to get around it is to start working. Um, the rules are really draconian. As I explained, like, the time, the, there's very little wiggle room. Um, this is particularly difficult for low-income people who are often working really unstable jobs because if you take a low-income person who's working an unstable job and is, as other panelists have referenced, trying to just, like, string together whatever they can come up with to bring some money in, that three months goes really fast. Um, okay, so that's how the rules work, just like basic overview. Um, so we have brought three lawsuits um, challenging ABOD implementation. We haven't directly challenged the rules. Um, they're statutory, so that's, it's a really heavy, I'm not gonna say it's impossible, because I don't like being pessimistic, but it's a really <laughs> heavy lift to try to challenge them straight on. Um, so what we've been challenging is uh, problems in the implementation. Um, so we've brought lawsuits in Louisiana, Florida, and New York, and those have played out really differently, um, but they all stemmed from kind of the same implementation problems. Um, so in all three states, we saw either uh, some combination of no notices when people were determined to be ABODs or really insufficient notices when people were determined to be ABODs. Um, so in all three states, there were some people who received a notice, but it wasn't like anything that anyone who works in legal services would consider to be a notice. <laughs> um, they, weren't, they weren't very individualized. Um, I think in Louisiana, it, now in Florida, they didn't even state, you know, you may be subject to these rules. It just said some SNAP recipients might be subject to these rules <laughs> eventually at some point. Like, it, they gave you no information that you could actually act on, even for the people who did receive them. And in all three states, there were people who didn't receive them. Um, all three states did big initial mailings when either right when the rules went into effect or right before they went into effect and all three states 
did not follow up with any sort of mandatory notice once people, as people became subject to the rules. So like if somebody had been pregnant when the rules went into effect and then they had the baby and the child wasn't in the home anymore, they would now be subject to the rules. They're not getting a notice <laughs> um, the way these states implemented this program. Um, another common problem we were seeing was really bad termination notices. Um, like term, people would get notices telling them your three months are up, your benefits are gonna be cut off. First of all, for a lot of these people, that was the first time they'd ever even heard of the ABOD rules um, because of these bad, these bad status determination notices or lack thereof. Um, and you know, they'd be, there wouldn't even really be an explanation of what the ABOT rules even were until like page eight of the note. Like how many of you work on public benefits issues like on a day-to-day -day basis? Several, so like you know how long these notices can be. The ABOT rules would the ABOT, the actual explanation would be on the very last page. So people were getting these and having absolutely no idea what happened. Um, and they don't, they don't jive well with um, the opening notices that people get, like when somebody first goes on SNAP, they get a notice telling them you're approved for this amount of money for this many months. The opening notice will say you're approved for a year, and then three months later you get this termination notice that's just cutting you off. And you have no idea why. Um, so those sorts of things we were seeing in all three states. Um, in Louisiana, uh, Louisiana played out interestingly <laughs> because of the political situation there um, so in 2015 Louisiana was still eligible for a waiver um, 2015 Louisiana was not in an economically great enough place to have to implement these rules um, but uh, back then Bobby Jindal was still running for president and Bobby Jindal was still governor and Bobby Jindal chose to not request the waiver for 2016. Um, so in, 20, in late 2015, they announced that they're not gonna seek the waiver. They start doing this very shoddy, chaotic implementation process where some people got these really bad notices, some people didn't. Um, we had plaintiffs who um, had like tried, had previously reported their a medical problem to the agency for another reason, that the agency had the records and they were still subjecting them to the rules. Um, it was not apparent that much screening was happening. Um, so we brought the lawsuit, all three of these lawsuits are both due process and statutory claims challenging the bad, the bad implementation notices or the lack thereof, um, the bad termination notices and the lack of process for identifying people's um, exemptions. Uh, so we brought the lawsuit. It settled really quickly because uh, right around when we filed the lawsuit, Bobby Jindal lost re-election <laughs> uh, and a Democrat was elected governor of Louisiana. And um, pretty much as soon as he took office, he said, I'm going to ask for the waiver again. Let's just settle this. Um, so that one went away fairly quickly. Um, that was an instance of kind of using litigation to create political pressure. Um, because there were, there were great advocates who had done a ton of work in Louisiana prior to coming to us, um, trying to bring attention to the problem. And 
they just they weren't it was not getting enough attention um, and so the lawsuit really helped um, focus the incoming administration's attention <laughs> um, Katie I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you if we can give you if you can give us the um, the outcome of those suits sure and then we're going to talk about a few other remedies um, aside from litigation yes. I'm sorry but we're we're I've been a terrible moderator and we're like out of time I mean we're always everyone's always short on time um, <laughs> yes so um, so in Florida um, Florida was a similar situation where they chose to implement um, the legislature made them do it um, again the same general claims um, Florida also settled um, not for political reasons Florida settled um, just through you know negotiation um, and the settlement included a one-time mailing to people who may have been terminated when they should have been exempt um, to kind of alert them to the fact that you might actually be exempt you should reach out to us um, and we had a good number of people who actually did reach out and did get back on benefits in the aftermath of that mailing so that was encouraging um, it also led to some improvements to the notices the state had made a few improvements throughout the litigation and they made a few more um, as part of the settlement um, and the implementation of an interview template to help agency workers identify people who should be exempt um, just like laying out the questions they should be asking because um, there were people with slipping through the cracks who very obviously could not work um, but the workers didn't like these these rules are hard on the recipients but they're also really hard on the workers they're very hard to implement um, and they're very confusing so the template kind of gave the workers a guide um, so they could better identify the people who should be exempt um, and then New York is still ongoing New York we're still currently litigating um, we're in discovery right now so we'll see <laughs> um, and yeah so that's that's where the where the remedies shook out <laughs> thank you very much okay so since I'm pretty familiar with um, it's what's interesting about this panel is that everybody could speak on at least two or three or four or five of the issues so I'm just going to go now back from the beginning with Professor Mishner and ask you each um, some questions and if we could try to limit our response to like three or four minutes um, that would be great so the question that I have for you Professor Mishner is in your book um, you look at uh, political action um, in a way that's broader than many of us lay people anyway look at political action and include things like fair hearings as a form of political action and policy advocacy um, I am wondering if you think there's something that the legal community could do in our work um, advocating for low-income Medicaid recipients and other recipients of public benefits that can um, help to uh, further engage um, our communities, our low-income communities, and that would ultimately result, and this is I know where your book goes, but I, I feel a little pie in the sky saying this, to a better democracy um, and a place where 
some of these issues might uh, abate. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I, I would. I don't begrudge you for being pie in the sky. After a panel like this, we need a little bit of. <laughs> My students always say at the end of a semester, like, can, "Is there anything positive you can tell us?" I'm like, "Look, I don't do positive." <laughs> but so I think this is great. I think you know part of what I tried to highlight in the book is that the legal community, the the sorts of folks sitting in this room are already doing some of this work in ways that are effective but also often not really recognized from a kind of academic perspective. So uh, I, because of, uh, I've talked about this to, to some of you already, but because of uh, an internship I did with legal services when I was in college, I've always thought about these sorts of things. I've always had legal services on my mind. And one of the things that I decided to do when I was writing the book was I, I knew I was gonna have a chapter where I thought most of the book is about the political engagement of Medicaid beneficiaries themselves. But I also wanted to think about the engagement of people who advocate on behalf of beneficiaries in different capacities. And I wanted to think about what I call sort of mediated advocacy and what, what effectiveness that has and what it might do <coughs> for our democracy. And so in the context of doing that, I interviewed a lot of public benefits attorneys at, um, at you know, firms all over the country, and there was really no one that I sat down with who didn't tell me a really cool story about how they got a sort of a, a preview into a problem in some sort of, you know, it, it, with Medicaid or public assistance more broadly because of where they sat as a public benefits attorney. And so usually maybe we get 50 people coming in a day with public benefits cases and then suddenly there's a day where we're getting 200 people and we realize something's wrong and we got, you know, within a week we get to the bottom of it, we figure out what the administrative problem is and then we start putting pressure in the, and that leads to a process where, you know, depending on where the pressure is put and, and how, what sorts of responses you get, you can get hundreds of thousands of people. I talk about a, a, an example in Pennsylvania in the book hundreds of thousands of additional people are getting benefits restored because of the work that public assistance attorneys did that seems really individualistic, um, but that can add up to a lot more than that. So some of that is already happening. Um, I, I would totally agree with that, and many of us have worked on cases that yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, you better than I do. And, and so I'm wondering, because, because we are familiar with what, you know, the, the power of the law, in, yeah. especially in this area. Is there a way that we, I know it's been a perpetual challenge for, to organize low-income people around their identity or the, their aspect of their identity that uh, is that they're low-income and, and as a result receiving these benefits. Is there something, and, and sorry to put you on the spot on no. this, that we can do as a legal services community, as lawyers, that would help um, help our clients organize better or uh, work uh, as partners in a way that um, you know the traditional lawyer-client relationship doesn't always allow for. Yeah, I, so there are two things that, there's more than this, but just to be brief, there are two things that come to my mind most immediately. One is thinking about, and again, I'm, some of this is already happening, so some of you might be like, oh, tell us something we don't already know. But I don't think there's a ton of it happening. Um, but one is thinking about 
creative and sort of productive ways to collaborate with folks who are already organizing Medicaid beneficiaries and other public assistance beneficiaries in a variety of other capacities and working in an integrated way with those folks and in a way that's not just about, so you may be thinking about the public benefits piece, but working with folks who are thinking about the advocacy and engagement piece to figure out where you can connect those pieces, whether it's in the capacity of being an information broker or of sending people to an organization that, okay, you're having a public benefits issue, we'll help you with your fair hearing, but also, here's a, right, and I don't know, some of that it just depends on, how, on the legality of it, but um, just that sort of connection um, and sort of information broker role I think can be really crucial. And the other thing is thinking even more broadly about cross-institutional partnerships like medical legal partnerships and those sorts of things that I've heard more and more about and have started to do some research on that sort of leverage already existing institutions and already existing organizations. Because um, you all are already doing so much work reinventing the wheel is not really feasible, but there are a lot of people doing work in different pockets, and I think some of the real, uh, the connective tissue, starting to develop that connective tissue is where there's quite a bit of possibility. Thank you so much, and I, I'll just shout out to Mara's sister again, who, uh, <laughs> uh, Community Voices Heard is a great example of that. Yeah. Can I add two things to that? Sure. Well, this might be my question instead, but I mean, I think also what we're seeing what I saw, um, we did a lot of work on, on Affordable Care Act implementation. And we had a lot of legal services organizations who got grants as navigator entities yes. and then also coordinated in coalition with others. And so that really helped sort of identify problems that folks were having on the ground, going to the folks who were running the marketplaces or the exchanges or Medicaid and saying, this is where we need to fix things. And some of it was technology and some of it was policy and some of it was the law. And so I think we've seen that. and then where some of the more community or grassroots groups could then have the partnerships with the legal aid groups to come in and do training so that folks understood what their rights were or what the policies were so they could see, you know, is this just a glitch I'm seeing that we need to identify as a glitch or is this a real, you know, policy problem? And then you get to the litigation piece. And I think what we're seeing in, in the waivers for Medicaid is a lot of the, the litigation, which comes, you know, pretty far along, but depends on getting a good administrative record. So when states are proposing waivers, it's getting the legal services folks to work with the community organizations to get Medicaid um, beneficiaries to actually submit comments. And Kentucky was a great example. They had like thousands and thousands, I think it was 8,000 comments submitted from a range of individuals who were gonna be affected, as well as uh, um, advocacy organizations who could then sort of put in the social science research and you know make some of the other arguments. So it was the personal, for the quantitative as well as the qualitative, and then that helps when we get to litigation, that we have a very strong administrative record, and that's helping us right now in Kentucky to say, how can HHS approve this when virtually all of the comments that came in on this proposal said, don't do it because of a zillion reasons. And so I think that's another example where you're showing sort of the integration of where the lawyers can come in with the grassroots and the on-the-ground advocates and the um, community health workers and the navigators to really all work together in ways that we can advance the ball for everyone. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to jump over David for a second and go to Jackie because that leads so well into the campaign that Jackie's working on to fight public charge that a lot of us and our organizations are involved in. So I can be quick with this. So the, uh, I'm one of the co-chairs of the public, uh, the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign. I don't love that um, <clears throat> title, but uh, uh, um, 
it's a campaigns involved litigation, which I can't tell you anything about because we haven't filed. Um, uh, it's also we're doing advocacy, so we're doing some hill work um, and uh, communication strategies. Um, but uh, also we're sort of trying to figure out what we can do to delay the role. Um, and one of the things that we have been doing, um, actually with the advice also of Professor Super, who's an expert on a lot of these OMB meetings, is actually, turns out there's an obscure, you know, I guess maybe not obscure to some people, but to me before this, um, uh, a transparency EO that was uh, uh, updated by Obama that says that if a rule goes to OMB, you have a right to request a meeting with them and they have to give you 30 minutes, um, you know, no matter what. Um, so we kind of thought, like, why don't we just bombard OMB with meetings? Now, these are career staff. Like, these people are not politics people. They're numbers crunchers. Um, and we've managed to get um, hospitals, uh, legal services providers, um, the city of New York finally, um, uh, uh, you know, Los Angeles, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia to bombard them with meetings. Um, and the people at OMB said, who are you guys, who are organizing you? We've never had any this many people come. This is about the cost impact analysis. So I was working, I, I chair the research working group and I was working with folks to, to produce data estimates around what the fiscal impacts and also the multiplier effects would be in terms of this many kids lose SNAP, this, you know, this many adverse outcomes. Um, and uh, honestly, it got bounced back to DHS. So I'm, I'm claiming that as a victory. Um, uh, so that's, we expected it would be out by now, and it's not. Um, we're still working on that, but eventually it's supposed to come out by July. Who knows you know, when it'll come out. Um, but that's the moment when there's public comments, um, and you are all part of the public. Um, and uh, we really need, we're trying to get 100,000 comments. Um, uh, that's our goal. Um, and you know, do we expect to stop this? Not necessarily, but you know, these were also these are things that will help with litigation, also. Um, and we really need folks to be telling stories, particularly of clients, family members. Um, people can tell their own stories, um, and you know, we really think this can work. And you know, I, I gave a talk at the National Anti-Hunger Conference uh, earlier this year, and. You know, hundreds of people in one moment said, you know, this didn't work for net neutrality. Why is it going to work for, you know, for this? You know, democracy's broken. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and, um, and, and, and I, I don't know what came over me. I just, I, I bent into the microphone. I said, if we stop believing in democracy, we stop living in democracy. <laughs> My coworkers have not forgiven me for this um, ever. I'm also from Argentina, and we stop believing in democracy all the time. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, this is actually real. But, um, but one of the things that happened since then is, guess what happened? The net neutrality thing didn't die in, in public comment period, but actually that built the political pressure to somehow get Congress to do something um, and kill it um, in Congress. So I think that when we think about a public comment strategy, it's really about a public communications and education strategy rather than sort of really trying to kill it um, and educating folks. And, and as those of you who are providers, the other thing I really need from you guys, so everyone, how many people are gonna submit a public comment? Yeah, check with your boss. I know, I know. Um, um, uh, uh, we'll let you know if you join the PIF campaign, bit.ly backslash PIF campaign, P-I-F. 
Um, and, and the other thing is if you're working with clients, um, we need stories, you know, and we want people to tell their own stories. And, and I can talk to you about our storytelling project. Um, I always think advocates are always like harvesting souls and story. Give me your stories. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, so that we can use them to, you know, do advocacy. Um, we actually are working with individuals to tell their own stories um, as part of our story uh, campaign. So if, public charge at nilk.org is the email. If you have clients or friends or family members, or if you yourself have concerns, um, even if it hasn't happened yet, if someone that you know stopped getting a public benefit because they're scared of immigration consequences, we want to hear that story. So um, thank you. Thank you. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point you to uh, some further resources from our panelists to look at um, in the interest of time. Um, so one is a forthcoming article from Professor Super uh, about administrative law and the fact that we are in an emergency or a crisis situation right now and that being in that crisis situation calls for dusting off some old administrative law doctrines that um, may be useful at this time. And uh, David, I, you know, th there's um, several suggestions for um, techniques the courts can use. Can you just share with us quickly your um, advice for civil servants? Because I think that's sort of interesting. Well, uh, one thing that I suggest in there is that there are a lot of corners that civil servants have cut to expedite um, the administrative process on the assumption that everybody is acting in goodwill. The current administration has demonstrated they're not acting in goodwill, and I don't mean that they don't agree with me. Um, I mean that they're not making a serious effort to um, analyze research and, and uh, uh, carry out statutes. And under those circumstances, I think that there's a good argument that civil servants should read every one of those. If it's 100,000 comments, so be it, because the preamble to the final rule is supposed to reflect <laughs> all of the comments that are received. Uh, and I think that there are some people uh, in the bureaucracy and the agencies in Washington that are not going to do flashy things, that are not going to retire or resign. I actually hope they don't retire and resign. Um, but uh, if they are, if they get 100,000 comments, it's going to take a while, people. Uh, you know, <laughs> don't hold your breath. And which is why I think commenting is very useful. I think that it is a way that we in the public can empower civil servants to make this a whole lot more technically complicated and hence a whole lot slower than it would otherwise need to be. So the upshot that I'm going to try to sum up a little bit of what we heard, I think that we need all of our tools, we need litigation, we need uh, really robust administrative advocacy, we need to engage in legislative fights, and we need to organize ourselves and the communities that we serve um, to fight, you know, really fight on all fronts to try to defeat the dismantling of our entire social safety net, which is sort of what's on the table right now. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the one issue that we didn't get to was um, Professor Mishner's um, focus on progressive federalism, which is um, sort of the opposite of the way we usually think about states' rights as a conservative uh, tool. Um, and, you know, I think 
some of what um, Professor Liu discussed and uh, in the history of welfare reform here in New York City. I should say, full disclosure at the very end, we have some HRA representatives in the room. Not representatives, private citizens who happen <laughs> to work for HRA and do a great job. Um, that uh, And because of our state constitution that uh, certainly New York could be an example of the kind of progressive federalism. I know that one of the reasons I'm interested in these issues is to think about what we have done in New York that's worked that could actually help other states. Um, it may require a constitutional amendment, which is far-fetched, um, but maybe, you know, there are some other ideas that will spring out of this discussion. Now, we didn't get to your questions that our runner-slash-committee <laughs> members got. I'm going to ask you guys to share with us the best question in your hand. <laughs> okay. Sure. Does anyone want to take that? Can I, can I just say, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, <laughs> about um, well, we all, we've all been thinking about this, how to talk to people who have different um, ideas. And one thing would be, you know, um, more people than you think are receiving benefits more people than you think have at some point in their lives received benefits or have been in a family that has received something that the United States government has provided as a safety net. Certainly in New York City we have examples of you know anyone who's gotten financial aid for college. We didn't even get a chance to talk about financial aid. <laughs> That's another issue. Um, the people who have been really vocal and brave about admitting, you know, there was a period of time when I needed help. This is what I did with it. You know, I just encourage people to have conversations with people to just find out, you know, when, when are situations when you needed some help and, and it was provided to you and what did you do with it? Because odds are the people that you think are really lazy are actually working harder than <laughs> the rest of us. Can, can I just say one quick thing? I think sure. we're in this problem <laughs> because over the last two decades, we've let people like Giuliani and Paul Ryan dominate the discourse because yeah. the truth of the matter is a lot of us don't even believe this, right? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I'm all in favor of welfare. Right. You, know, you, know, um, you know, I mean, there's all these public opinion polling, whatever, but the truth of the matter is that people who are supportive of public support programs are not actually actively talking about it because it is the third rail. So I think one thing is to talk about it. Two, 
I know that this is a crazy thing to say in 2018, but there's a thing called facts. And there's really, um, there's like a lot of data <laughs> that shows that these programs work, including some new studies that just came out in the last few weeks that SNAP raises people out of poverty, that, that Medicaid makes kids healthier, that SNAP helps with cognitive development, that WIC helps improve maternal and child health. Like, I'm not embarrassed to say that I think these programs are good. SNAP's an economic driver. For every $1 billion that goes into SNAP, you get $1.78 billion back in, you know. not have wanted money? So I just, I think we have to stop being ashamed, and I think we have to educate ourselves. And I think, honestly, like, the facts are there. So, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Fake news is versus facts. Let's see which wins. It is the numbers, too. I mean, it really is. In Medicaid, 74 million people are on Medicaid in this country. So if someone has neighbors one out of five of their neighbors is on Medicaid. And so we do have to find the good, you know, the positive stories, not the good stories. But, you know, I think we were really surprised last year during the ACA repeal and replace debate how positive Medicaid polled. Holy crap. You know, I've been working on this program for 18 years, and like 70% and more of the country supports Medicaid. So I think we also have to figure out, you know, the outliers, and we're not going to change everybody's hearts and minds. But I think we can by find you know by finding the way, and some people it's going to be facts, and some people it's going to be stories, and you know there's those different things that are going to hit different people. But I think the the people are on our side, the politicians are not, and so we've got to find ways to elevate what the people are thinking, and save our democracy, as you were saying. No. Uh, I'm not going to let you let that one. No, 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 no. <laughs> but find a way to get back to you know helping each other and not worrying about the political gains and losses. So I know some folks have to go. Um, Marianne, do you have any good questions in your pot? Uh, not good, but like questions <coughs> that you think? Oh. Yeah, yeah. I w oh, should I pick my own? Sure. <laughs> you could pick your own. Private hospital bottom lines. So if we, if we flip the house, then are we safe? Are we safe? It depends how much. I mean, I could go a zillion ways, but yeah. let's say in general, if we can flip the house, we're so much safer than we are right now. I mean, because then you don't have all three, you know, House, Senate, and, and administration controlled by the same party. But it all comes down to who's elected, where they're elected from, and where the politics play out. And if we can get a little bit closer in the Senate too, even if we can't take it back, every seat matters. And turnout matters even in, in the elections that the Democrats don't ultimately end up winning, because if there are Republicans that were previously just so safe, nothing to worry about, and suddenly this election, it got really close, too close, closer than you would want. You know, it, it's, it's also there's a signaling process, right? Because there are some seats that are just not going to flip in one election, but if if it's clear that there's a strong signal sense about the, the decisions that have been made, then th that's better. It's that, there's a lot that can't be solved, I will say, in, in this one election, but, there's, but it's really important, especially given the crossroads that we're at now with a lot of these issues. And not, not to be that guy, but Clinton signed, just Clinton signed Prowra, just to remind people he was a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah, signaling so dynamic bad. just happened in Virginia. Like, yeah. Virginia, Medicaid expansion just passed, even though there's a Republican majority in the Senate in Virginia. 
there are people who got scared by last year who voted for it. Just a few. It only yeah. takes yeah. a few. It only, only a need few. a couple. <laughs> David, do you? I mean, if, if either chamber of Congress flips, we will have a long series of government shutdown fights. Um, no, we will. Um, and the, the president's already talking about that. And I think one thing we have learned over the years is that government shutdown fights favor the politically more nimble. Um, and right now, the political ineptitude in the White House has been effectively screened by two very savvy politicians, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. Uh, if one of them is not controlling their chamber anymore, then we'll see whether the president can explain that he's shutting down the government uh, because we're not throwing people who can't find work off of SNAP or because um, we're uh, demanding that more um, pregnant uh, immigrant women to, uh, return breast pumps or something like that. Um, maybe he can pull it off, but I, I think that we certainly, that the fight changes from where it is right now. It doesn't go to anywhere good. He's not going to sign anything good, but it changes to a government shutdown um, fight, and uh, I don't like this guy's chances of doing well in that. Thanks. Marianne, do you want to ask the last question, make it your question? <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. Now we're gonna. Yeah, that's a good note to leave it on. We are going to post um, some materials. We'll post a link to where you can get more information about um, submitting comments on the public charge on our City Bar webpage. So. Uh, I think because the city bar makes you register, they have your information, and so we can get uh, a link out to you. And I just want to thank everyone, thank the panelists again, and thanks.